Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Uh, Barnaby Joyce being selected to lead the National Party again has put focus on the coalition's climate policies, especially the likelihood of the federal government committing to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. And that's in line with the Paris Agreement goal to limit global warming to well below two degrees. Uh, We've asked Nick Blanford to join us to speak about climate attitudes in regional areas and the bush. Uh, He's a Gippsland farmer and member of Farmers for Climate Action. He'll also sits on Victoria's Young Farmers Advisory Council and it's great to have you with us Nick welcome good morning good morning thanks for having me and I guess when um, Barnaby Joyce returned to the Nationals leadership last week um, did your mind go straight to climate action um, Nick uh, um, like I it looks like you know many journalists but a lot of the population went straight there with their thinking um, you know is this net zero transition gonna happen now yeah I think there was a level of shock sort of that that the party has sort of moved to that decision and sort of see it as a bit of a backward step. But I think, um, in my mind, a little bit that the National Party wasn't exactly at the forefront of climate policy. I think Michael McCormack had spoken previously in the past about trying to remove agriculture from the net zero emission target. So, um, I mean, the government's been in power for eight years. Um, climate policy is not really sort of their strong suit, I guess, and, yeah, not something they're really looking to advance. So, yeah, it's a backward step, but from a fairly long way back in the uh, their position, I guess. And on that note, I guess, Nick, what's your sense of of how people in regional areas, I know you're based down in Gippsland, uh, relate to the Nationals these days, given, I suppose, that, uh, you know, recent history, at least a recent history um, of really sort of dragging their feet, I suppose, on climate action? Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to explain, to understand. I think the challenge we have sort of locally is that the Nationals are, are really strong in Gippsland. It's one of their safest seats. Um, and we've had really good representation from our local members and, like, particularly with our current local member, Darren Chester, um, is a really kind of well, sort of rational person and seems to be a quite a good politician. And um, so there's a lot of... It's almost that they're a party of independents that each sort of local member sort of is voted in based on that and sort of rather than they don't have a lot of things in common other than their affiliation with the party. And I think I've spoken to Darren Chester about this before and he has said that, you know, he doesn't have a lot in common with George Christensen other than the fact that they're both sort of National Party members. So um, I think there's a feeling within each sort of electorate that they are good representatives for them. Uh, And part of the problem, I think, is that there's not other sort of... There's not an alternative sort of local regional representation that's coming through that's going to represent them from that area. If you sort of look at the electorates and who's sort of the second on the list, like if you're voting for a Labor Party or a Greens Party, they have good policies, but their their first priority is often sort of seen as the city issues. And so people from these rural and regional areas really want that kind of representation or local representation. And I mean, I, I guess we, we've seen over the past decade or so that, you know, independents get up in some of these seats that um, do swap between you know, Liberal Party, National Party or coalition type seats, I guess. Um, do you think these kinds of issues around climate might see that happen more often? Yeah, absolutely. I think regional areas are really crying out for leadership in this area. Um, not just representation and having these rural independents. And I guess the example would be uh, Kathy McGowan and Helen Haynes from the seat of Indi that are, are local people, understand the local issues and can really represent those at a, at a national level and take these issues and say, well, what are the implications for our communities with regards to climate change and how? what are the implications, what's going to happen in the future and prosecute that case and prosecute the policies that we need to take forward to actually make a difference, whereas I don't think the National Party is quite able to do that and they're often hamstrung sort of by the, the federal level or the sort of national executive about the decisions that they make about this, so... Yeah, and uh, I mean, you mentioned Darren Chester before, who, you know, is a very well-respected local member. He's someone who has lost his portfolio as a result of the reshuffle um, when Barnaby Joyce reclaimed the leadership of the Nationals Party. Do you imagine that there'd be a lot of people down in Gippsland who might be kind of unhappy about that? Or is it more about Chester being a very good representative of the community? So as long as um, he's still an elected MP, then, then people are relatively satisfied with that. 
Yeah, I think that's probably the case. Like, I think there is a sort of sense of anger that Darren has lost his position in, like, lost his portfolio, um, and there is that kind of politics at play. But I don't think they're going to stop voting for the National Party based on that. I think they'd see it. They're better off having Darren as the representative rather than the Nationals being the sort of the party that he's involved in. So I think that's sort of the disappointing thing is I think there was an opportunity for Darren in the past to sort of be more stand up more into the in in the party room and sort of prosecute a case for sort of the poor behaviour being rewarded and I think because that hasn't sort of happened in the past that we get to these points now where there sort of doesn't seem to be consequences for that those actions and that they yeah you get these people coming back into their positions quite easily. Yeah, that's really interesting observation, um, Nick. I, I wonder, I mean, you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, the previous national leaders, Michael McCormack, um, you know, really saying, well, if we remove um, agriculture from, from the net zero, uh, any sort of net zero target or commitment that we, we make as a government, that, that could be a way forward. And we've sort of heard um, uh, Little Proud talk also about, um, you know, ways that that things could, you know, that the National Party could come on board with such a target, I guess. Um, I mean, what's your sense around those sorts of um, ideas around agriculture not being considered as part of net zero targets because I, I guess you know with the work of farmers for climate action that you're part of that there's seen to be a lot of opportunity for regional australia in the changing of the economy and actually agriculture is fundamental to the economy so how can it be carved out i'd just love to hear your views around that nick oh yeah it's i think it's it doesn't make sense to me that you would try and remove agriculture from a from the net zero emissions target of getting yeah it just doesn't make sense and there's so many opportunities for farmers to get involved with these things and there are programs like David Littleproud had us organise the biodiversity stewardship program that sort of has implications for carbon accounting and there are things like the uh, um, Australian carbon credit units from the emissions reduction fund that are available to farmers currently that are part of this that could be sort of looked at further and expanded and I think it's really important and further to that point I think there's basically the industry is really on board with it the, the National Farmers Federation's already set or stated a goal of get, achieving net zero by 2050. Meat um, and Livestock Australia, who represents animal agriculture, have set a net zero or to get the red meat industry net zero by 2030. So I think if you went and looked at the industry, where agriculture is already moving forward and there's many steps ahead of the National Party. So for them to kind of lump us and sort of almost promote it to the world that agriculture can't get to net zero by 2050 is really disappointing and it misrepresents the, our industry I think and it doesn't set a good example for the trading partners that we're looking to sort of work with. Yeah that, that's interesting because I mean often farmers are, are very highly attuned for, for obvious reasons to trade agreements and, and what's happening internationally with you know potential um, tariffs on, on carbon and, and that kind of thing looking ahead to make sure that their industry is safeguarded into the future uh, based on sort of people you speak to in, in farming and, and, and maybe agriculture specifically is there that concern that if we don't really work out how agriculture can be part of a broader zero net emissions push that farmers will potentially kind of be left uh, in a really compromised situation down the track if they haven't been kind of compelled to adapt now and think more um, proactively I guess about how their practices can be integrated with a broader zero net um, net zero emissions policy. Yeah, I think so. I think there is a concern with what the markets would look like. It's sort of, it's very, con, sort of, it's a little bit confusing about how it's all going to play out. And that's sort of part of the problem as an industry is that there's sort of not the knowledge necessarily about how we're going to achieve these things. And because of that, people are somewhat reluctant. And you see things like these carbon farming initiatives, and they're really good. But because it's such a juvenile market that we're not quite sure what the implications are. And I think that's part of the downfall of having our sort of the representation that we have is we haven't sort of had these things explained to us and say, well, this is how it's all going to work. Um, particularly sort of something like the soil carbon market is that you can increase the soil carbon. At, and at the moment, I think it's about $16 a tonne, the equivalent of the soil carbon. But if that starts getting traded on a European market and they're sort of up around $100 a tonne, and if your soil carbon decreases, then you have to pay that money back. And sort of there's risks involved with that, that people are concerned that with the sort of immaturity of the market, that they're not going to be sort of looked after properly. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be teased out and explained and understood better. Um, but without sort of doing that and sort of going down this pathway of sort of just sort of saying that, oh, it's not going to be good for farmers doesn't help us in any way. 
Yeah, because it doesn't get to that conversation. I'll just remind people who you are, Nick. Uh, Nick Blanford is a member of Farmers for Climate Action. He's a Gippsland farmer as well, and he um, is also a member of um, uh, Victoria's Young Farmers Advisory Council. And we're talking about uh, really the the net zero transition and how it could play out in the bush and, and how it's sort of um, related to the, the National Party because the Nationals uh, represent many of the seats where there's a, a lot of agricultural industry at play. And I guess I wanted to test um, something with with you, um, Nick, that we hear a lot. And I know it's it's probably, you know, political rhetoric, but the idea that the National Party itself represents more intensive users of the land, like extractive industries over farming and agriculture, is that a sense in, in your area or is that a sense a- across Australia that that is actually the case? Oh, I think generally there probably is a feeling like that. I think I saw some research done that of the national electorate seats, there's no seat that has more than 20% represented by farmers. So I think it's sort of, you've got to be careful talking about rural electorates that it is just farmers or it is just miners. Is that there are sort of major sort of towns in these areas. There's a lot of tradespeople. There's a lot of people who work in healthcare service to providers, right, retired people. So it's sort of, I think it's difficult to say who the National Party specifically represents if they talk about representing rural and regional areas, that it's not necessarily just farmers. Um, and, yeah, it's difficult to know whether their interests do lie, particularly with the mining concerns. I mean, you see the stories and you hear the kind of that information, but, it, yeah, without sort of the clear information, it's difficult to know. But in terms of their policy positions, it doesn't appear to be great representation and it's definitely not leadership. And given that sort of trajectory that the Nationals seem to be on um, as a result of the, the change in leadership with, you know, Joyce and, and Canavan very much sort of, you know, talking up um, the, the the importance of, of prolonging coal industry and, and that kind of thing in Australia and what you said earlier about Nationals generally representing uh, particular areas, not necessarily, you know, representing the um, what the leadership of the Nationals might be spruiking at any given moment. Do you think there, there may be more of a push for independence in certain areas, more kind of of the ilk of Helen Haynes and and Cathy McGowan in Indi, where we might see particular MPs get up on the basis of the strength of their support from the community over and above the fact that they represent the National Party? Yeah, I think there's, and it's been a bit of a shift and I'm not quite sure, and I think someone, um, one of the former Young National members that's spoken about this is that the Nationals were traditionally a party of geography and now they're a party of ideology. Um, And because of that, there is the potential that I think that people can come through and speak about rural issues and represent those issues sort of in a way that doesn't sort of look at those sort of old-fashioned ways that the National Party has sort of represented those issues in the past. So I think there is a real opportunity for that to happen. Um, It's just finding the people. And there's a lot of um, leadership programs and courses, particularly in rural areas where we're sort of trying to promote these people to step forward. It's just the challenge of making sure that they feel like they're supported within their community to be able to do that. And I think that's where that sort of, again, that uh, voices for Indi, Kathy McGowan, Helen Haynes, that there was that capacity to have community support and there was a organisation behind them and there was that sort of almost stability to succession plan that they knew what was going to happen into the future that is uh, quite an interesting sort of concept to have put in place. Yeah, it really is. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I, I guess um, before we leave you, um, Nick, and I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I, I wonder, I mean, you mentioned earlier around really, uh, you know, many people ready to start talking about, you know, you call it, could call it the how, like how actually can these markets move from from the sort of, yeah, immature mature or, or juvenile sort of state to something that is um, really fit for purpose for a net zero global economy and and that we're not getting to that conversation because of perhaps because of the politics. I mean, what's your sense of how we could shift from from where we are now to being able to have, I guess, those more sort of sophisticated and tangible conversations in 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 regional areas, um, and, and particularly, I, I guess, in, in Gippsland where you are. 
Uh, so I think there's a few points, and I think that sort of speaks to that leadership. And um, I'll give a bit of a plug for the Farmers for Climate Action. I think they're a really good organisation that provides a lot of these resources and information about how we go, what the implications are and how we go down this pathway. There's a lot of things, like building climate literacy in farmers is really important so they understand what the problems are. Um, representation from organisations like the peak bodies, like the National Farmers Federation, is going to be really important. And I think sort of having those organisations be able to do that. And then the other thing I'll plug probably is the state government in the part, I think it was a couple of months ago, announced uh, it's a $20 million initiative to support farmers in their climate action. And one of the really important things, they've got 250 farmers who are going to basically do on-ground ground truthing of what their carbon emissions are and what that looks like. And I think that's really important because I think there's a sense in the community from farmers is they're not quite sure what they need to do and how much carbon emissions there actually are from each individual farm. Like, as an industry, we know we're sort of that 13%. And I think we really want to take that personal responsibility to get that figure down and get to net zero. But, yeah, we need sort of those that ground truthing to be able to make sure we're actually doing what we need to be doing. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And you might have heard of Australia's news media bargaining code. It's a law designed to have large technology platforms that operate in Australia pay local news publishers for the news content made available or linked to on their platforms. And while it sees it as flawed, Digital Rights Watch is running a series of events next month all about how much genuine bargaining power creatives can have with big tech. And also um, the events uh, we're going to be chatting about um, we're seeking to understand whether digital platforms have done enough to date to support local needs, especially as these platforms have benefited from more of us working and socialising online through the pandemic period. Uh, to speak more about this and our broader digital rights is Lucy Krakova, um, who is with us and she's Exec Director of Digital Rights Watch. And welcome to Triple R, Lucy. Uh, it's good to have you here. Hi, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, we've, we sort of picked up on your Rebalance the Internet Economy series of events coming up. Um, I guess Rebalance sounds like once upon a time there was a little bit more balance on the internet. Is this the case? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think we hope that there, at least we hope that there was. Um, <laughs> you know, when we, we often speak about the fact that the internet of today is fundamentally different from the internet we used to have. Um, and I think at least in the sort of nascence of a lot of these digital platforms, content creators, um, for instance, on, in places like YouTube, um, you know, their models of um, their economic models, um, as well as the way they were able to produce content looked a lot different um, than today. And so how do you view the, the news media bargaining code in that context, I suppose? In your view, is there, there a hope at all of the, the balance being restored through the mechanisms that that's set up? Yeah, look, for us, the uh, news media bargaining code was a frustrating <laughs> conversation to watch happen. There was a lot in that. Um, so it stems from that ACCC report, um, the, their digital platforms inquiry that they did. Um, and this is sort of the first piece that they took forward. But for us, what it did is basically um, capitalize on the data mining <laughs> advertising models um, that digital platforms do have, which already is a big problem from our perspective, and then embed that into making sure that um, news corporations basically had a bigger cut of that profit. So for us, that did actually very little in rebalancing anything, um, essentially just entrenched the news giants in with the tech giants, and it did very little for local creators. So out of that frustration for us, we thought, let's, well, okay, we're seeing digital platforms fail people on a lot of fronts. Let's have, you know, a chat with the local community. Um, and I can speak a little bit about sort of the places we've identified that we want to talk to most, but, you know, have, have a chat with the local community about what's really impacting their work because the economic model is one thing. I think, you know, for a lot of people um, working here in Australia, it's not, you know, they, they're not making this kind of profits maybe that they would want to see or that are commensurate with the amount of time and effort that's spent producing content online. Um, and then the other thing is, of course, they're impacted hugely 
by uh, content moderation policies and algorithmic changes, um, you know, things like shadow banning that happen um, and content creators really have no insight into when or how. So we were coming at it from a place of, okay, let's really have a chat with the people on the ground and then produce a series of recommendations. And we'll take those to the platforms as well as to the government to actually, you know, create a, a bargaining code that's not just for um, the Murdoch empire in a way. Well, uh, yeah. And I just think it's just such a fabulous idea to do this and in kind of town hall type settings and, and over a couple of themes. And I, I would actually love you to elaborate on who you're hoping to involve with this and, and yeah, who will we rebalancing in, fa- in, in favor of? Is it, is it really, you know, just the creatives or is it also, I know, you know, women often have a hard time in, on online, but also other groups in our community aren't as represented in, in our, kind of traditional economy I guess but definitely not in the internet economy yeah tell tell us what you're doing yeah so the scope is a little bit I've gosh I wish we could encompass it all um, <laughs> the scope is a little bit limited for now we're going to be um, focusing the we've identified like four town hall events um, but of course um, you know we want it to be a conversation so there's going to be kind of surveys that we're going to um, send out throughout the communities so we get like you know, the most possible responses. So we're not in some sort of a weird filter bubble um, in our surroundings here in Melbourne. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, the first event that we're starting off at the end of uh, July will be called Exhibit. And it's going to be about people who um, we have some uh, folks who exhibit sort of photography um, uh, and and sort of body how should I say this? Oh, um, body issues, things like that. So they're, you know, we're talking about like creating content, images, videos, reels, um, things like that online. And the model of that, then we're going to have an event on um, music specifically. So we're going to have one called Create a Music. We're going to have one called Imagine on writers, bloggers, um, and actually the small content creators that I think the news media bargaining code truly forgot. Um, and we're going to do one called Gather, which will be about with fellow community organizers and other NGOs to talk about the challenges of, you know, making our movements um, and making the Internet work for for social change. So those are sort of the big four areas. Obviously, um, you know, we're at Digital Rights Watch. We're extremely concerned about women's issues. So I hope we can weave a thread of that. Um, and we know that a lot of these issues in particular impact um, indigenous communities and, and marginalized groups. Um, I think the most highlighted on social media people see um, the black community as sort of being uh, often forgotten or not as monetized as some of the white content creators. That's that's the big conversation in the U.S. And I, I have a suspicion that we're going to see something similar like that here. So we really want to highlight that as well. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, I mean, there's so much in there and I'm really keen maybe to, to speak to you on the other side and see what came out of that and, and, and even what kind of response you might get from the large tech companies and, and platforms and so on when you go to them with, with some of these findings. Reflecting on the news media bargaining code for a moment and, and particularly Facebook's ban on Australian news, which, um, which lasted for a number of days, it kind of felt like a lot of people might have become newly aware of the extent to which they did rely on um, the likes of Facebook for not only uh, you know receiving their news, but also getting news out there. I mean, Triple R was a number of um, one of a number of, of organisations and small publishers who had um, their pages kind of suspended, even though, of course, um, many small-scale organisations never stand to, to benefit from the news bargaining code itself. So, so do you think that that there is perhaps a growing awareness of just the extent to which, um, you know, there's not really an equal playing field across the internet and, and maybe more of a willingness for the layperson to to really be more more willing, I suppose, to, to push for greater reform and regulation to make sure that, um, that, you know, rights are really respected in the online space and the large tech companies don't have too much power and power over our data. Oh, yeah. I've, I think for sure people are um, seeing it more and more and there's a growing frustration. No, no doubt. Um, what Facebook did taking all those um, pages down and ours included, actually, we've decided to, to leave Facebook as a result um, because, you know, our movement can't be subject to the whims mm. <laughs> of, of that um, 
of that decision-making um, brain trust that they have. Um, but yeah, it's I, I see definitely a frustration. There's plenty of surveys that show that people, you know, don't trust what's happening to their data. They don't trust the platforms to act in their interest. And, uh, you know, for us, that's a double-edged sword because, yes, I think we have a runaway train with the big tech, but, um, you know, that the internet's also a really wonderful place and it used to be a really fantastic place. And, you know, it, I think in terms of facilitating communication and connection and, and facilitating social movements that wouldn't happen in real life. um, There's still a huge role for the internet to play. So we're really approaching it from a place of how do we make this space better? And I have to say um, the, some of the companies that we've approached, because we we want them to actually come and sit in the room. You know, they don't necessarily have to partake, but we do want them to listen um, to what co- creators have to say. They're pretty enthusiastic about it. And a lot of them are trying to, you know, come and step up to local content. YouTube does local content reporting now. Um, Netflix is focusing on a lot of local content. And I think they understand that there's a need <laughs> to not just export American culture anymore to actually um, engage with, uh, with the local. So I'm I'm fairly optimistic that this can have um, some nice outcomes for people. Um, whether the government will actually take anything we say um, seriously and regulate is a different question. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was also interested in, in um, you know, people can go and find out on the Digital Rights Watch um, website and the page there around the events about the, the aims and, and how they can get into, in, involved in things like that and sign up to your mailing list. Um, but one thing I read is that you're hoping to, to kind of pay an accurate picture of what the local intimate economy looks like. And I would love to sort of hear the, the thinking around how the internet economy and I guess the sort of more traditional economy is different and how how that we might get a picture of what that sort of internet economy looks like here from, from Melbourne or from an Australian perspective. Yeah, we're really hoping the report can do that. And, um, you know, because I think for a lot of people, it's a skewed... Um, it's a skewed perspective because they see, for instance, like YouTubers or certain musicians who've like kind of skyrocketed and become viral and they make huge amounts of money. But the reality, and I'm sure you have plenty of people um, who could speak from firsthand experience, but a lot of the local musicians, they'll make, you know, sense on Spotify, for instance, um, for 10,000 plays, they'll, they'll have like, you know, a fragment of a dollar. Um, and so it really, I, I don't think it, you know, the, there's a wonderful equalizing energy of the internet that everyone has the same access to the same things and, and the same tools, but um, really it's kind of diffused some of the responsibility from these platforms um, towards content creators. Like it wouldn't, if they were an employer, you know, there would be different relationships. So I think we have to take a look at it from that perspective and like what, you know, it's hard for independent creators to unionize in a way, and I'm not sure unionizing would solve this issue, but we do want to give them a voice of, hey, this is how you can fix it and meet us halfway, and, and this is going to be better. So we're hoping the the report kind of helps pivot to that, and, and we're hoping to also put real numbers in there and, you know, talk to a lot of the musicians, and I, a lot of them have really struggled during COVID. You know, we've all seen gigs canceled left and right. That's how most people... Um, make the bigger chunk of their money. And of course, so now they're forced to be on digital platforms, but it's really the the economic model just doesn't doesn't service um, service the small and medium-sized bands and stuff. So yeah, we're really hoping to shed a light on that and, and prompt a discussion. Yeah, I mean, there's a serious imbalance, isn't there? If we look at Spotify and, you know, reportedly paid $100 million um, for the you know, Joe Rogan podcast, um, you know, compare that with the, um, the you know, piddly amount that, 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 you know, independent bands or, you know, non-independent bands as well receive from, um, you know, large numbers of streams on that pl- platform as well. It sort of feels like um, these companies rely on becoming too big to fail in some ways where they sort of monopolize the space, whether it's podcasting or music streaming or, um, you know, kind of social media activity, and then they can sort of dictate the way that that model evolves into the future. Um, But you did speak about some positive things that are happening in relation to local content creation and that sort of thing involving the likes of Netflix. Do you think there is a willingness for some of the big tech um, platforms to change the way they do things and, and be open to giving some you know, power back to individual content creators and, and communities? 
Yeah, look, some of them are forced to do that a little bit through regulation. So a lot of the local content um, that they started producing, and people might notice this on their Netflix. <laughs> I'm just using, I'm using them as a flailing horse in this instance. But, um, you know, you might notice there's a lot of Spanish, French shows, uh, Portuguese, um, and that's because of local content laws. Um, some of that's due to kind of copyright and, and other issues. But the government's really forced them, like, if you're going to be selling your product here, you need to produce this much content that's sourced locally. Um, and I think it raised a, a lot of uh, really great questions for them. And so, um, you know, now they're doing that more proactively because I think they've realized that A, it connects with the local audience more and B, it's like cheap. It's, maybe it's cheaper to film in certain places than just making everything in the U.S. Um, so there's there's different reasons for why that happened. But I also think it's a, a big part of they have to stay connected to their users. And I think there's a real frustration now um, with the platforms being so dominated um, by the U.S. and the trends there and the discourse and, you know, uh, that people do long for something a little bit more local, something that they feel like their communities and their governments have, uh, you know, some control over. Um, so this is I think it's you, you know, it's it makes sense for them to come to the table um, as much as it does, uh, as much as that might serve us, but it actually for them to preserve their own business models and ensure some sort of success and profitability, they have to meet with the local, they have to meet the local communities halfway. So yeah, this is a great moment, I think, to have that conversation. Yeah, and um, and, and you're there to help um, at Digital Rights Watch to, to meet <laughs> yeah. halfway. And I mean, do you think that the pandemic situation with so many of us working online, and as you say, with, with musicians in particular, but other performers, um, you know, investigating other ways to, to still practice their, their professions and, and, and their um, art, uh, has a pandemic sped up some of these conversations, do you think, Lucy? Oh, yeah. Um, the, I think the pandemic has really, <clears throat> sorry, showed us um, how, like, how entrenched the Internet is in our everyday lives. And um, I think there was a real opportunity during the pandemic for a lot of the uh, bigger platforms to step up and actually offer, um, you know, better deals and, and paying deals and gigs and stuff to musicians. And I, I sort of watched it in frustration. To me, it was such a win-win. Um, you know, if you're paying some, if you start paying people a little bit to do for Insta Instagram lives or anything like that, you know, um, it, and I just was frustrated that I didn't see that happen. And they just kept focusing on their profit margins and people got frustrated. So I think that's a wasted opportunity, but for sure we've seen, um, I think the pandemic has just made it a lot clear and a lot of these companies have just multiplied profits thousandfolds um patreon i think is one of the examples we use on that uh, web page on our on our website where we promote the events you know hit a one billion valuation during the pandemic it grew thousandfold so there's really been um a shift when people couldn't make money um in the real world quote unquote <laughs> in the analog place um to to shift towards um towards digital platforms and and then a lot of people realize like oh well this is actually not the same the monetary models aren't what i thought um so yeah it's it just sets us up to have a really timely um timely discussion but for sure um i think future proofing this um a little bit and thinking about you know uh, the world might not be as interconnected or as flexible as it used to be for a while yet. You know, a lot of people who would tour or do international uh, circuits, every, every, not just musicians, but writers, right, with books, you would do um, kind of tours. And um, for us as community um, leaders, we also can't go to our conferences and all those places that we used to um, come with together with the community and, and work. So I think we really have to uh, shake up the system a little bit so it does what we need it to. Yeah. And we're the ultimate end user, so to an extent they have to listen. Absolutely. And, and speaking of coming together, how will your town hall events be running? Will they be kind of online-only events or um, are you, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's always a bit risky, isn't it, to plan um, physical events uh, at this point in time, but how are they actually running and how can people find out how to get involved? Great. Um, well, look, I'm, I'm no fortune teller. I'm watching the situation <laughs> unfold as everybody else is. Uh, we're really, really hoping that we can do them in person. Um, the first one at the end of July will be in Melbourne and it will not be online just because 
of the sensitivity of the conversation. We're not comfortable. We haven't figured out a way to open it up to the broad uh, internet. Um, but the other ones, hopefully, we will be able to live stream so people can take part and, and interactively sort of ask questions. Um, but yeah, we're hoping to run them in person. That's kind of the whole point. I think everyone's really longing for a sense of community and connection. And we're really lucky here in Australia that we can kind of do that safely. We're very lucky in Melbourne, fingers crossed um, that that doesn't change. Uh, but if it does, you know, we'll adapt <laughs> and we'll do it online. <laughs> but God, I just, I need to hug people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that out loud. Oh, no, no you're allowed to say it. There's nothing illegal in saying it. <laughs> uh, and there's plenty yeah, of people I, in Sydney who'd be thinking the exact same thing, I feel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we took some hard hits last year in Melbourne. So, um, yeah, look, for people who want to find out more, you can go to digitalrightswatch.org.au forward dash internet economy um, which will take you to where we explain a bit about the project um, and you can sign up for updates. We don't send a ton of emails, but you will definitely know when these events are happening and you'll know when the surveys and stuff are happening if you want to participate that way. Um, and that's a great place just to be in the loop on what we're doing. So, um, oh, and for folks who have Twitter or Instagram, we're also on there. So DRW, Oz, hit us up. Excellent. Uh, Lucy, it's been great to have you on Triple R this morning. Uh, we've learned a lot and rebalance the internet economy. Yeah, do all those things that Lucy just said if you're interested in participating because uh, it sounds really valuable and love this idea of meeting halfway. Um, oh, good brilliant. on you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so Lucy. I hope to come back and let you guys know how it went. So looking yeah. forward to that. It's, it's a date for the future, future date. Um, look forward to that. Uh, Lucy Kroll-Kova, um, Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch and, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to hearing what comes from that project town hall event in person. Uh, let's see that happen on the 29th Absolutely. of July. Fingers That's what crossed. they're aiming for. We can do it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Victoria's Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, or IBAC, last week released a report into the state's prisons. It found evidence of corruption, with prison officers found to have used excessive force against prisoners, conducted inappropriate strip searches, and smuggled illegal items in and out of certain facilities. The report forms part of IBAC's broader examination of these issues, but there are some who say reform of the prison system can't wait. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service is one organisation calling for an urgent response. Andrea Lax is the Head of Policy Communications and Strategy over there and to talk about these issues joins us on the line. Andrea, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thank you for um, having me on your show today. Our absolute pleasure. And, I mean, this report brings together four separate investigations into misconduct into particular prisons here in Victoria, but it notes that incidents are not really isolated. It talks of uh, systemic issues and, and even potential systemic corruption. Based on things you might have heard through your work with VALS, did these kinds of um, things that, were, that came out of the report surprise you at all? In, in response to your question... Um the findings of the IBAC report were not a surprise to us, but they are concerning, um, I would actually say alarming, and really this report is just another in a series of damning reports of um, prison culture and the treatment of people who are detained in Victoria's prisons. And so as it currently stands, what processes are in place for prisoners to make a complaint? For example, if, if they feel like excessive force has been used against them or they've been subjected to an inappropriate strip search, what they can do, can, can they do to kind of raise a complaint and, and have that investigated? How easy is that to do? So... Um for those of you who, who may have read the report, it's quite lengthy. Um, one of the really concerning findings was that in one of the internal investigations, one of the people um, who was subject to, to the investigation called Prisoner A, um, when they were interviewed, that was done in the presence of the officers who are alleged to um, have been present at the incident. So I think that's really um, 
a serious concern. Obviously, people can't provide their version of events in a safe, confidential manner if, if the people they're alleging have used excessive force against them or um, really degraded them during strip searches are present. Um, there are uh, sort of mechanisms in place in terms of... Um, uh, matters being referred to IBAC um, directly where there's allegations of corruption, although this report recommends that those are strengthened. Um, and also, I suppose, you know, when we look at adjudicating complaints, that's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, what we really need to be working towards is identifying risks and mitigating them and preventing torture and ill treatment in Victoria's prisons. And that's where the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture could have um, a real impact in, in this space. I mean, there's just so much in here, Andrea. And I wonder, I mean, just... Uh, I guess for my own understanding, but maybe others are also curious of how IBAC sort of involved in this space um, because it's an anti-corruption body and, and, and the kinds of findings it has is around inappropriate use of strip searching and the like that you've just mentioned. How is it that they interact in this sort of area? So IBAC um, has a statutory function to look at corruption across the whole of the public sector, um, and that includes the Department um, of Justice. So uh, under Victoria's legislation, corrupt conduct is defined as um, where a public officer or a public body uh, uh, engages or their conduct is such that um, it uh, involves dishonest performance of their functions, knowingly or recklessly breaching public trust, or misuse of information or work-related materials. And actually, this report identifies that IBAC received 179 allegations in relation to the correction sector, and that accounted for almost 14% of all of the public sector allegations referred to it and assessed by it um, in this period. Yeah, wow. And, and I mean, you mentioned this is part of, of you know, a series of reports that have found uh, improper conduct in, in prisons and, and the type of, of corruption that I mentioned in the introduction. Is there a sense that, that these sort of haven't been acted on, that we get these kinds of reports and then nothing really happens to remedy these situations? Absolutely. Um, and particularly when we look at the sort of inquiries and royal commissions we've seen in relation to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in custody and deaths in custody, um, we can see there's a pattern of reports being released by independent bodies or inquiries initiated by governments and then those recommendations aren't implemented. So we're kind of caught in this um, cycle of, of reports and investigations and recommendations, and then years later the same sorts of issues are coming up. Um, so it does seem like we're, we're sort of stuck in, in a bit of a state of inertia. And, and, I mean, why... I mean, this is kind of a broad question, Andre, but why is that? Why is it that we, we see that happen with regards to recommendations and we've, in Royal Commissions even and... And then maybe some recommendations or none are implemented and then, yeah, we're back in the same place a couple of years later. I mean, what's your thoughts around that? I think it really just comes down to political will. Um, we've definitely seen um, the Victorian government, the Andrews government, really focus on a law and order approach. Um, we've seen it publicly celebrate construction of an expansion of Victorian prisons, identifying these as opportunities for employment, rather than really reflecting on how this... What this actually shows is that the Victorian government's policies in this area are failing. And, of course, this year we had the 30-year anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and so many of those recommendations haven't been implemented. So, really, the... Experts um, and, and those people with lived experience have told successive governments what to do, but there just isn't the political will. But I think what's probably been quite hardening is seeing the, the Black Lives Matter movement really um, gain momentum in Australia and really raise awareness. And what's very clear is that people in Victoria and in Australia um, are really starting to voice their concerns um, in, in a, a sort of much more vocal way and I think it's really critical that the government of the day listens to what the public want.
Is, is your sense that there might be more of a, an appetite for change in Victoria? I, I guess, you know, I'm thinking about the, the treaty process that's underway and, and the truth-telling commission is part of that as well. And, I mean, we, you know, we had the decriminalisation of public drunkenness in Victoria recently, which came, you know, far too late and, and after the tragic death of Tanya Day. But do you have a sense at all that there might be potential for progress to be made with some of the things we've seen more broadly around, uh, you know, treaties and, and and reconciliation and the like? Um, well, firstly, I just really want to acknowledge um, sort of the, the staunch advocacy of um, Auntie Tanya Day's family in um, in pushing for, for that reform. That's a really important reform. And, you know, at Vales, we've, we've absolutely celebrated um, the, the government's decision to establish a Truth and Justice Commission. But what we haven't been seeing is um, a commitment to enact reforms that have been identified as urgently needing to be implemented. So, for example, bail reform. Um, a few years ago, the bail legislation um, was um, made much tougher. Um, experts have told the Victorian government repeatedly that this is a failed policy. Just recently, during Reconciliation Week, Val's penned an open letter to the government and 55 organisations signed on. Um, legal organisations, service providers working in this space, human rights and civil liberties organisations have all said this needs to change and um, we haven't really heard a response yet and there doesn't seem to be any um, sort of uh, indication that, that this is going to change. So I think that's just one um, really disappointing example of the lack of, um, I suppose, uh, interest and commitment by the part of the government to to really make the changes that are needed to, for decarceration um, and having a, a more equitable and humane justice system. Yeah. Andrea Lux is our guest. She is Head of Policy Communications and Strategy over at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And we're chatting about a recent IBAC report into Victoria's prisons, which found evidence of, of corruption um, and misconduct involving the likes of excessive use of force. And the report notes an increased reliance on privately managed prisons in Victoria, partly, I suppose, as a result of the ballooning prison population, which has increased by around about 80% over the past decade. I wonder if you can talk to us about the use of private prisons in this state and, and I guess explicitly how that might be impacting on um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners in Victoria. That's actually a really, um, I think, critical part of, of this report. Um, currently, you know, as of the end of May this year, about 40% of Victoria's prison population is um, being held in privately run prisons. Um, we have three private prisons in Victoria. And if we, we look at sort of the genesis of this privatisation of custodial settings, um, it was a, a way of dealing with uh, increase in prison populations in the US. And um, what I think is really interesting is to see that now the US is, is moving towards reversing that approach. So when President Biden um, came uh, came into power, he's um, earlier this year he's um, for, for the federal level prisons um, made a statement that he will no longer be extending the contracts of privately run prisons because they are found um, not to sort of deliver safe and secure um, prison settings for people. And he's also importantly for, for the context. In Australia, when we're talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, he's linked that decision to um, sort of the, the grave race, racial injustices that we see in the US. Um, and, you know, also in other states in in, uh, in Australia, we've seen really damning reports. A few years ago, there was a damning report um, in Queensland in relation to its uh, privately run prisons and the government in response said, all right, we're not going to extend those contracts. So it feels like Victoria's pretty out of step um, in terms of where everyone is moving, even those jurisdictions that have pre previously, um, I suppose, uh, thought that a privately run prison system is, is the way to go. And um, I also just want to note that 
often when we talk about privately run prisons, we talk about, you know, for example, Port Phillip Prison that's entirely run by by um, a for-profit corporation. But also in Victoria's uh, prison system, what we see is the health service provision, primary health service provision, is also delivered across all of its public prisons by a private contractor. Yeah, right. And uh, I mean, is there the sense as well that, I mean, is there kind of less regulation over those private prisons than there is over public ones? I mean, I'm thinking about some of the, the issues we've, we've you know, read about and, and heard about over the past year or so in relation to privately run nursing homes and how the level of care wasn't sort of up to the level that of, of public homes as well. And we know the impact that had. Well, in even, relation- private, in, even private security and things like that. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so is there a sense that there's kind of fewer are, um, I don't know, regulations or oversight and, and care within those environments compared to those that are, that are run by the state? Um, the answer to that would be yes. We've seen a report in 2018 by the Victorian Auditor General's Office um, that identified some of its concerns around the performance of, um, of privately run prisons, but you know, also generally um, recognising uh, very concerning shortcomings across the publicly run prison system as well um, but uh, in terms of the concerns it raised there around what sort of uh, data um, is made publicly available uh, that was one issue um, in the report from 2018 and then also raised by IBAC in last week's report was the fact that we have these commercial in confidence contracts which limit um, sort of that public oversight or transparency with the public around you know, what, what are the, the sort of the terms of, of these contracts? What happens when those, um, those terms are breached, particularly when they relate to, to the, um, the human rights of people who are detained in prisons? Andrea, what next? What happens now? Because we have another report. It has been tabled in Parliament and we've already spoken about the track record we have in, in Australia around acting on these, on these kinds of things. Um, what, what next for this uh, particular um, process? So what I would hope to see is that the Victorian government takes this damning report very seriously. Um, I don't think it's possible to sort of celebrate its um, progress in relation to treaty and the Truth and Justice Commission while ignoring what's happening on the ground every day to people who are detained in prison. So I would definitely expect the government to um, implement recommendations immediately, but also consider, you know, where it can improve its practice more broadly, um, particularly around decarceration. So we want people not to be, um, we want the prisons not to be overcrowded. um, So we want to see um, things like reform to the the bail legislation, changes in policing practices. Obviously, the government's got commitments under the Closing the Gap um, uh, plan and also the Aboriginal Justice Agreement um, milestones as well. Um, In terms of strengthening oversight, I would hope that the government would immediately begin publicly consulting with Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal organisations in relation to the implementation of OPCAT. That's a really important protocol that, if properly implemented, could prevent the torture, ill-treatment and death of Aboriginal and other people, as well, of course, um, in custody. So they're they're definitely some of the the top things on the list. But also, I think probably one of, um, I suppose, a missed opportunities that I've seen in this IBAC report is looking also at strengthening legislative provisions. There's a lot of um, conversation or a a lot of um, discussion around policies and procedures and training, but I think until we see those sort of rights and responsibilities enshrined in legislation with very real consequences um, for um, failures on behalf of of the system and individuals, um, we're just not going to see the change that we want. Well, it makes a lot of sense to to me, Andrea, it's been great having your insights this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for um, having me on, on your show. I think it's a really important issue. So thank you very much. And so do we. Totally agree. Andrea, Andrea Lux there from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.